Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. Sometimes during Christmas, something magical happens. Hey, Cricket customers. The Max with Ads plan is included with the Cricket $60 Unlimited plan at no additional cost. And this holiday season, Max is the one to watch when you're feeling festive. Son of a nutcracker. Cozy up to all the holiday classics like Elf, 8-Bit Christmas, and the Harry Potter 8 film collection. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. Phone plan streams and standard definition programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. Hello, Rank Squad, and welcome to Ranks FC. It's your favourite football podcast back for another week. My name is Jack Collins, and I'll be your host today as we're looking at some big Premier League problems that need to be fixed ahead of next season. I'm joined by our transfer guru, Mr. Dean Jones. How you doing, mate? Hello, mate. Yep, all very good. Thank you very much. Very good, very good. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by the Ranks FC head coach, Mr. Harry Brooks. How you doing, mate? I'm good, thanks, lads. I was going to say, I've been on enough times now. I think I deserve a nickname. You've got Transfer Guru, Sam Ty, rest in peace, the, the rank god. So I think it was about time. That I, uh, the I head coach. Are you happy with that, being the head coach yeah, of Ranks I'll take, FC? I'm I've, been, I've been called a lot, lot worse, so don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have right. you back, Harry. It's always a pleasure. We're looking forward oh, you. to getting you into that main segment and seeing what you've got for us ahead of that new season. But before we do that, a couple of things we love. And DJ, why don't you start us off? Oh, you want to start with me? Well, Harry likes uh, Spurs, so let's um, go Spurs mm. and another Harry. Um, so, look, the thing I'm actually loving is the uncertainty around Harry Kane. <laughs> and do you know why I'm loving it? It's because everyone's brains are absolutely spinning 
from the fact that it won't go away, this Bayern Munich thing, and no one can quite understand why it's there at the moment. So sources in Germany around Bayern Munich and Sky Sports Germany are absolutely convinced that Harry Kane wants to join them. And over here in England, most journalists I speak to, a lot of insiders like around the club, are still a little bit flummoxed by it. Uh, what's weird about it is Harry Kane's camp aren't denying it. Everything's very quiet around it. I can't really figure out what's going on because this doesn't seem to me like a dream destination for most footballers, least of all for Harry Kane, who's seen as much of a homebody and has never shown any preference really to want to leave England or the Premier League. And you thought if he was going to do that, then if it was Real Madrid or Barcelona, maybe even PSG, to be honest, might be a little bit more sexy these days than going to Bayern Munich. But I was thinking about it and I was like, look... Obviously, he could go there. He'll win trophies. That's a guarantee. It's not that far. It's like an hour and a half travel uh, on a plane. So it's not that too bad. But also the unbelievable attack he'd be leaving. Sané, Mane, Musiala, Muller, Nabry, Coman, if he's still there. What a selection of players to have around him supplying the ammunition. You know, we thought James Madison was a good player to be supplying him for next season. But those lads absolutely knocked that out of the park. But is it real? Like, this is the thing I keep coming back to. Is this legitimate that they're pursuing him? Because if they're going to pursue him properly, they've got to pay proper money. I've still got major doubts about whether Bayern can pay £100 million for Harry Kane. And if they're not willing to do that, I just don't believe that this can actually happen. But I guess if they do come in with a second offer in the coming days, which is what we're being led to believe at the moment, look, I'll be honest, Spurs still deny that a first offer went in, but everybody else says that one did. Um, it'll be really interesting. There's a conversation to be had. Spurs can't afford to not let him go because they need cash. Otherwise, they're losing Harry Kane for free and this passes by forever. But at the same time, Spurs can't afford to lose him because they let 30 goals a season go. Harry, look, you are the man in the know at Spurs. You know plenty of uh, plenty about the club's history and their style, and you know you, I'm sure you love Harry Kane. What's your solution to this? How do you? I don't know if I want to know how you want to see it play out or what you think will happen. Maybe a bit of both. I mean, the fan in me wants Harry Kane to stay forever, but the, the realist has to say that this is like a generational striker who is 29, going to be 30 this summer, I believe, and he's yet to win a trophy, which is insane. And every noise that Kane has ever said, you know, hasn't necessarily been about leaving, but he's always been highlighted how he has to win the team trophies. Yes, the the individual accolades are great and there's no question he wants to break Shearer's record, but he has to win team trophies and not just a League Cup and then be satisfied. He wants to win the biggest and the best and... I personally think that he was silly to have signed the contract that he did a few years ago. I think that was the time to, to get out or at least to to make a play where you're getting out at the age of 27 to go join um, the elite establishment. Um, but I think from his perspective, I think that this move makes a lot of sense. Not to like stat pad trophies. I mean, obviously, it's, I mean, Bayern Munich have won, what is it, 11 Bundesliga in a row. Chances are they'll win at least two trophies again next year. So if I was him, I would personally be joining a club like Bayern Munich for two, three years and then come back to the Premier League after because he's, I think, is it 48 goals behind Shearer? I don't think there's any question that is huge for Harry Kane to achieve. I think that is dead set in his mind. And I think if the question was, 
obviously it doesn't work this way, but let's say he had to go join Bayern Munich and stay there for six years. I don't think he'd do it, but I think he would do it in the prime premise that he would maybe come back in two or three years' time, maybe three years' time, and then he would still be 32, 33. Mm. And that's more than enough time to get the 48 goals left anyway. But I do think that he is, I wouldn't say panicking, but I would say he would be thinking, I can't be 29 and let it go much longer without having won a single trophy. I mean, even his England teammate Declan Rice has won a major trophy recently. He's probably the only one left in that squad that hasn't. So um, I think for his personal achievements, I think that's why he would do it. But I think it would be always with the, the, the premise that he would be wanting to come back in no more than three years' time to, to break Shearer's record. Mm. Yeah, I think it makes plenty of sense, actually. I'd never really considered it like that. Um, but it, but coming back and kind of having that twilight sepulchre, especially if Spurs have turned things around by then, you know, this is a new era. And I know that we say this a lot about Spurs. And I know we say, OK, it's the rebuild, it's time to rebuild. But it does feel like a break from the, what we've seen in terms of the managers of the last couple of years. And whilst that was not a particularly bad idea on paper, it hasn't worked. And so to actually switch direction and, and try and get that sorted, it feels like maybe in a couple of years there is an opportunity to come back into a side that feels like it's in a better place uh, than it is right now. We do have a hot take at the end around Harry Kane and Ange Postacoglu, so I'm going to part that there, although I will say that I never thought I'd hear Dean Jones saying that the thing he loved was a transfer saga over the summer uh, with, with the... With well, the it keeps me in a job. I know. It keeps me going. That's a, different, <laughs> that's a very different thing. <laughs> um, I just want to add one second one, is that the thing I love this week is that it looks like Carlo Ancelotti is confirmed to take the Brazil job at the end of his Real Madrid contract. So he'll take it next summer in June 2024, become the head coach of the Brazil national team. I imagine he'll do some work before that, considering it's Copa America, et cetera, et cetera. But it feels like the right time for him to step into international management. And it's kind of shocking in some ways that Carlo Ancelotti hasn't managed a national team before. He just feels like the kind of manager who has been around the block and kind of done everything, and he's won everything else. So you're looking at this and thinking, Right. How does, you know, how does he make that step into international management? But kind of caveating that, he's going to be leaving this Real Madrid side and walking into a team that still includes Vinicius Junior, Rodrigo, Eda Militao. It's going to have probably still have Casemiro as the captain. It's going to have Richarlison as part of it, someone he obviously coached at Everton. Neymar's just thrown his backing behind Angelotti to be like, Yep, this man feels like the man to lead us into a new era. And suddenly you're like, oh, he basically knows the entire team. And generally, I think when you look at this, there's so much talent in this Brazil side. And we talk about international competitions all the time and it being an incredibly difficult thing to, to do, a bit like the Champions League, in that there's so much luck and randomness involved in the idea of a knockout competition at elite level. But the idea of Ancelotti going in and taking the Brazil job, you know, one of the most distinguished gentlemen in the game, taking maybe the coolest job in the game, just feels so right. And I've absolutely loved seeing the kind of in and out of this, the, the Willy Wontney this summer and it finally coming to fruition next year. I'm, I'm really excited for the idea of Ancelotti as Brazil manager. Harry, I mean, the question I'd probably pose to you on it is that difference between international management and club management Someone like Ancelotti, who seems quite laissez-faire, who, who's able to allow his players that kind of flexibility to, to perform on the stages in the way that they want to, does that take away a little bit of the pressure that maybe someone like a, a Pep might struggle to begin with in terms of actually getting people to play his kind of way in a far more condensed time period? Yeah, I think, I think 
people often have like a starry-eyed vision of what international football looks like. You're not going to get a manager that comes in and revamps the, the the way a team plays. So if you look at the teams that, you know, perhaps had the, the, the Spain teams that had like, you know, consistent success playing a certain way. Yeah, but that's because it's ingrained in the culture to be like that throughout. So it wasn't like the manager was coming in and, you know, teaching them new ideas or coaching them new ideas. It was the same when Germany had success. And, you know, it, if you want to be successful as, as, as an international manager, you have to be, I would say, one of two things. Obviously, you need good players, as everyone does. That's always going to be the most important thing. But in terms of you need the culture where there's familiarity. So no matter who the manager is, there's a familiarity in terms of what we expect from our players and the ones that are coming through and coming into it. There's no elements of too much surprise. It's not like learning a completely new way to play. Or by the same token, you get a manager that can kind of come in one-off and like win games as and when, you know, because they're so tactically outstanding. They can bleed um, everything from their individuals. Now, Ancelotti isn't someone that has like a strict, defined way of playing. As you said, he likes, you know, giving players freedom. Now, the problem with that at an international stage, how often are you with those players and how often are the players together to get that rhythm with one another? You know, it's very, you know, you're there for short periods of time during the season. So is there enough time to, to get that familiarity? But then again, if you do give absolutely elite talent like Neymar and, and Vinicius Jr. the freedom to interpret, you would back them to have the understanding, the quality to win more games and not, rather than trying to, you know, pigeonhole them into a set way of playing where there's no time to work on that with international football. So, yeah, I'm. I mean, to be honest, Jack, you broke that news to me. I had no idea that was happening. So uh, <laughs> that's actually an appointment that I'm. Uh, he's taking your 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 job thing. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what. <laughs> what you know, with the Bruce Zill setup. <laughs> yeah, Look, from a coaching point of view, what I'm interested in is like, how easy would it be? Because like, obviously, you talk about samba football, all the rest of it, and you think like it just comes naturally to Brazilians to just flow in the attacking quarter, attacking third. But what about so if you could like quickly make that side resolute and they're hard to score against. And you'd be like, right, the top four or five, you do your thing, but mm. the back five, this is you're you're going to keep this team shape. I mean, I know that sounds very very basic, but when you are heading towards a World Cup, you basically got to win seven games. How easy is that to quickly construct? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's. I always have the phrase of every situation is different, so it's certainly not a rule. But I, I personally think it's easier to destroy than it is to create something. So. Working on attacking patterns of play, that takes time. You know, that, that you're getting a team to flow and attack. But it doesn't take that long to be able to get a team to like where to be organised offensively and things like that. It doesn't take too long. Obviously, the willingness of the players is another question. But in terms of the attacking style of play, it's kind of what you've alluded to and what I said earlier, and, and Jack, you as well, in terms of like the, the Brazilian culture, it, it, they're all ingrained to be those kind of players that Ancelotti would perhaps thrive with. You know, that in Brazil, you're allowed to lose as long as you're seen to be doing it a certain way. You know, that's why, you know, they're very emotional. They want to play with, you know, passion and heart and skill and flair. So you can have a loss like the Germany 1-7-1, whereas you go the other end of the spectrum, England, where the culture is a lot more, we must do things properly. You know, that's why you'll never see England lose 7-1 perhaps, but you'll never see them maybe win the World Cup because yeah. it's kind of like glorified losers. We're, Risk and reward. You're right? allowed to fail as yeah, in England, you're allowed to fail if you're like Jordan Henderson because if Jordan Henderson has a bad game, the English culture will allow it because it's like bang, bang, crash tackles, like, you know, heart on your sleeve. Whereas Brazil, it's the opposite and it's more about like 
the passion in terms of on the ball. And I think Ancelotti will suit that to an end. So yeah, it's really exciting. And yeah, I'll, I'll, it'll be it'll be a, a brave man to to back against Carlo with what he's done in the game. Yeah, definitely. Well, they're favourites. They're favourites already to win the World Cup. Them and France. He's so. top five managers ever, I would say, from what I can see. I mean, he's achieved, what he's achieved is absolutely remarkable. So yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. Carlo in charge of the Celestial. Going to be something very, very special. Right. After the break, we're going to be talking about some big problems in the Premier League and how we go about fixing them. Don't go anywhere. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome back to Ranks FC. It's time for our main segment. We're looking at some big problems in the Premier League. So I'm going to hand over to the head coach, Mr. Harry Brooks, to start. <laughs> yeah, on, it's, it's of, yeah, it's one of those where it's it, it's perhaps not problems from the outset, but it could definitely lead to things that need to be solved or will be solved, okay. whatever that might be. Um, so it's not like I'm these ones here. It's like it's predicting a disaster season. It's certainly not sort of, you know, the clubs I put into it, most of them I predict will have a good season, but I do think they're going to have problems that need to be fixed. And the first one, which is, you know, a really big talking point is number five, which is, um, you know, how Ten Hag is going to continue to improve Man United without that established, recognised number nine. Um, you know, obviously there's lots of rumours about them. There was early rumours in the season about uh, in, the, in the transfer window about them trying to sign Harry Kane. I think that was pretty clear from the get-go. That wasn't going to happen. Moved on quickly. I know there's strong ones about Hoyland. Um, Aussie men is obviously like a big name. Is it, At the moment, there isn't too much, from what I see, there isn't too much confidence with regards to Man United signing the number nine that they will have complete confidence in to, to really take the team to the next level. And obviously last year, you know, Ten Hag did a great job. Rashford had a superb season. You are now becoming incredibly reliant on Marcus Rashford to continue to produce those number of goals from, you know, the left-hand side. Um, or you're going to have to sort of like shoehorn him into the number nine where he's not as good. Um, and again, you're reliant upon the likes of Bruno Fernandes, uh, Mason Mount obviously coming in. It just perhaps isn't that sort of focal point to make the ball stick or to provide, you know, the combination play as a number nine, you know, number nine work alongside the goals. And I think it's a problem that if they're not able to sign someone, Ten Hag is going to have to be quite creative in how he addresses it because, you know, in football, you have to constantly adapt. You know, if you become predictable, you become much easier to play against. And you've seen all the other teams are pretty much strengthening. I would say the Man United, yes, Mason Mount will improve their team. 
But I'll say they're probably the one team out of the top seven now, really, that you look at the squad and say, oh, they've still got quite a bit to do and there's no kind of, there's no proof yet that they're going to do that. So, yeah, it's a problem he's going to have to solve. And 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 I guess it could be by signing an number nine. It could be by meshing around the team he currently has. Um, but it's definitely something that is going to need to be addressed, I think. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. And, and look, the, the rumours are spiralling, as they always do with Manchester United and number nines. Now, I, I don't think, and I mean, look, I'm happy to be proved wrong if this goes wrong, but I don't think anyone is going to pay what Napoli want for Victor Ossiman. I just don't believe it to be true. Uh, fundamentally, I don't think anyone's going to put 150, 180 million on the table, euros, in order to actually prize him out of Napoli's grasp. So I think that makes him all but unattainable, as far as I'm concerned. I saw some really interesting ones. I like the link that United have to Medi Taremi, who plays for Porto, who has played a lot in a front two alongside Evan Nielsen, who was obviously linked to Manchester United last summer and then again in January. But I actually think Taremi might be a better fit in terms of a short-term option that allows him to do you know, the sensible things. He's a striker that is able to hold the ball up, who's performed at the highest level in the Champions League, who's done this for a long, long time for Porto. He can play numerous roles. He's quite versatile. Yes, he's on the wrong side of 30. But if United are looking for a stopgap while they kind of assess their options, he's like a Veghorst with some goals. He gives you the things that Veghorst was good at, that Ten Hag likes, but also can finish. And that, that's, I think, is an important distinction. The other one I saw yesterday was from friend of the pod, Doogie Critchley, Dean. And I wonder what you might think of this. He said, why aren't Manchester United looking at Flo Balogun? Because whilst Arsenal might not want to sell to a Premier League rival, if United put 30 million on the table for Flo Balogun, I think Arsenal would find it relatively hard to turn that down. And I thought it was an interesting idea, considering some of the numbers being thrown around for strikers after what Flo Balogun did in Liga last year. I think the main concern would be if he's not good enough for Arsenal, why would he be good enough for where Man United want to get to? Um, and if you're looking at a player of that age, then they've already profiled Erasmus uh, Hoyland as the player that, that better fits what they're looking for. Like You've got to remember, Man United don't even just... They came into this summer not just wanting one attacker. It was two. Like ideally, like the takeover was supposed to have happened by now. Man United was supposed to have a much bigger transfer budget. And they were supposed to be able to go out there and buy a top striker, a Kane, an Aussie man or whatever. And they'd also buy a younger emerging player like Hoyland. So Hoyland, like now is still being talked about and genuinely could still arrive at, at Man United this summer if they can negotiate on the fee and get him for under £50 million. Like they could still happen. But I think that's more in their sight than saying Balogun. Yeah, he's had a decent season in in Liga, but ultimately, if if Arsenal feel, I mean, in that... real terms, he's had a real, he's had a far better season than Rasmus Hoyland, who scored seven Serie A goals. Now I like Hoyland, and I'm not, I'm not trying to take away from him. In real terms, Balogun's had a better season than Rasmus Hoyland, who scored nine Serie A goals. Balogun's gone and you know been in that top scorer conversation in Liga. Now, fine, you can address the, the strength of the leagues relatively and all that. And I'm not trying to take away from Hoyland because I think he's a wonderful footballer. But actually, in terms of proven goal-scoring ability, one of them has delivered on this season and the other has shown flashes of it. Those are, those are two slightly different things. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's fair. I mean, obviously, you can, you can make an argument for it. I mean, that he's not been a player that, that United have, have seriously looked at. Um and I, I just don't think that this is a a period when there, there's likely to be a player that comes out of left field that's that amount of money. Um, I think he's probably too expensive to just take a chance on out of the blue. Like if they haven't already scouted you for months leading into this moment, 
unless you're a lone last minute signing that they take a punt on. And to be honest, I think if Taremi was a last minute signing or an out of the blue signing, I think that that's quite good. If after a long pursuit of a centre forward, you end up with Taremi, don't think it satisfies the fan base. And I think you're leading towards problems early on in the season. So that would be my argument for why United probably don't go down that route. One name that I'm surprised I haven't seen so far, and I guess because it would be so difficult to do, but I think the number one, listen, the number one would be Victor Ozzyman, I think, and that's, I think most people would agree with that if it was possible. doesn't seem to be possible. Hmm. Is Ollie Watkins at Aston Villa. I think yeah. because they United play, so if you look at, let's say, their front three behind the nine, or, you know, let's say that Rashford, Anthony and, and Bruno Fernandes, or let's say it's Rashford and Anthony, you've got Rashford who is quite, he wants to be able to attack inwards, into the pitch. He wants those gaps to be open there. Rasmus Hoyland is a bit of a selfish runner. He would like quite often occupy the spaces Rashford himself wants to get into. Bruno Fernandes, we know is how direct he is. Anthony is like, he wants to always be 1v1. And I think you're going to need a striker that is very good with his selfless movement as well as his, you know, movement himself to get into the box. And I think Ollie Watkins and another one I love is Evan Ferguson. Yeah. I think that not only would Ollie Watkins and Evan Ferguson both themselves be able to get into positions to score, they perhaps don't have the class yet of the elite number nines, but I think they would make the rest of them play better. I don't think Hoyland would yet make Rashford play better. I think he's too unrefined in terms of his combination play. Um, and I think, again, he would look to sort of get into the zones that Rashford wants to get into a bit too often. You wouldn't see much combination play. I think Fernandes would love him because he's always going to be on the move and Fernandes always wants to play that pass. Um, but I think you're going to need someone like a, a Watkins and a and a Ferguson that can also like play for themselves, but bring the rest into it. And then when you have that, when you have that, it, if if, that, if Man United sign Rajmus Hoyland, for example, because he's quite single minded, for him to be a success, he's going to have to score probably 17 plus Premier League goals because he's not going to make the rest better. Whereas if you sign an Ollie Watkins and even an Evan Ferguson who's going to make the rest play better. They might not score as many goals, but they might contribute to the overall team better. So they might score less. They might score 10 to 12. Or Watkins had a great goal in scoring season. They could get that, but they could actually facilitate perhaps Rashford uh, scoring, you know, a similar amount. Anthony scoring more. Fernandes scoring more. Mason Mount coming in scoring more. So I think the, if Man United are going to sign someone for that role, because the others are quite individualistic, it's going to have to be someone that can make the rest of them play better. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I actually think you're you're spot on, and that's why I like Teremi. I think also that kind yeah. of experience point at that kind of age. Coming- how much do you think you say like a Teremi, like you guys, you Dean, obviously you, you. How much do you think that someone like a Teremi, who perhaps hasn't got the 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 euphoria around him, like how much does narrative come into it? Do you think that like in terms of he might be a great fit, but the narrative is already negative in the sense of oh, it's not the one we wanted. Like, do you think that has a tangible effect on? On, on, on the club, on the, on the squads? I don't think it does on the squad. I think it's the fan base, isn't it? And that and yeah. that's part of the feeling around the United transfer window here. It's like, you've got to have a double win. It's got to improve the squad, but it's also got to give the club overall the feeling that they can actually compete yeah. next season. Like the second season of Ten Hag is about evolution and it's about taking somebody on, like having Veghorst for that part of the season. Like to be fair, Veghorst did do some good, good, good teamwork yeah. there. There's no doubt about that, but you want an upgrade on him and not enough fans know about Taremi. Like we might know about him and have seen him and know that he's good, 
but there's not that instant factor like other clubs have been getting from like a Sobersly signing or like a Declan Rice or Kai Havertz signing. There's, it doesn't give you that immediate boost. And so I think that that's something that they need to look for. If it was Taremi and somebody else that goes into Man United, I think that that's absolutely fine. If Taremi is the only forward player that United add to that front line this season, don't think it would be good enough. Yeah, okay. I think that's yeah. a fair point. I think that's a fair point. Should we move on to number four then, Harry? Yeah, well, Jack, you'll actually be a far bigger expert than me on this in terms of how um, what we can expect from the new manager. But I want to put this in there because I'm going to be really fascinated Bournemouth got a lot of stick for sacking Gary O'Neill mm-hmm. and it's very reminiscent and it's and it's an easy comparison, but there is a comparison to when Southampton sacked Nigel Adkins a few years ago. They got it in Pochettino um, and obviously the, the rest is history. And I'm going to find it really interesting. Let's say that that's the benchmark for a club like Bournemouth to go into this new direction. Um, I'm going to butcher his name. How do you pronounce his name correctly? Andoni Iraola. Iraola, right, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was that. Okay. Uh, When they go in this new direction, it's going to be fascinating. Let's say they have looked at the Southampton model and perhaps the Brighton model as as the premise for this. How they're going to achieve it because, you know, Iraola's coming into a squad that done really well to survive, but it was definitely just a survival mission, I thought. Um, You know, I look at the balance of the squad and, you know, they conceded the most goals out of all the teams last year who stayed up. I think their top goal scorer was Philip Billing, who had seven, who's a really good footballer. But, you know, you can't rely on that as the consistent way to score goals. I think their second top goal scorer was joint between Tavernier and Jefferson Lerma. You know, Lerma's left now. So, I know they've brought in Justin Cliver, who kind of fits the profile stylistically, but is he that kind of killer in the final third? Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how a club like Bournemouth, and, I don't, and I'm not saying they're not going to do it, but I'm just fascinated in terms of how much would they potentially have to sacrifice getting results in the short term to, you know, push through with this new way of playing, this new identity as a club. Do they risk relegation f- through doing that? Um, is it a risk worth taking? It's a question to be answered. You know, the, the recruitment is going to be vital this summer to get it right because they just do not have the profile of players right now overall to, to make this work and to stay up in the division. But I'm going to be fascinated to see how it works. And I, right now, I, I genuinely don't know. I have a gut feeling, says that Iroyolo will himself do a very good job. But it wouldn't surprise me if it turns out that, you know, they're perhaps struggling and then, you know, you get really, you know, that there's the, the the fear of relegation and the owners panic. And if they're going to go through this route, they're going to have to really stick with it, I think. And even if it ends up being getting relegated, don't try to tear it all up. You know, trust what you're trying to do. Look at the long term picture, and go from there. So it's going to be really fascinating, and it's hard to predict. Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair enough. I, I really like Iraola. I think something that's really interesting is if you look back through his Raya Vallecano squad from last year who, you know, looked like they were pushing Europe in the first half of the season. And then, you know, you get you get through the season, you develop it, and actually they drop off a little bit, but they're nowhere near the relegation scrap. Their top scorer was Izzy Palathon from the kind of wing with nine. Then Sergio Cameo, who played up front with seven. Alvaro Garcia, who played on the left with five. It It's quite interesting to see 
the similarities with what you were describing there. Um, now, well, one thing I will say players, just on that, yeah. I think one thing I will think we'll see is I think Dominic Solanke, who I'm a big fan of, I think he's going to have a fantastic season next year. That's one thing I do predict. So, um, yeah, that would be my little early prediction for Bournemouth. But other than that, mate, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, this is it, because I actually think that Solanke's best strengths are not necessarily actually sticking the ball in the back of the net. Yeah, and yeah. I think that Iraola will love that kind of player uh, who's a bit selfless in front of goal. Obviously, you have to have an element of selfishness. You're a striker. But who is able to bring others into play and, and, and bring those players? I think Marcus Tavernier, who cuts in off that right-hand side, is going to be a really interesting player in that kind of palathon role. Uh, if if Areola goes with the same type of side and type of tactic that he went to, through at, at Rio, I think what's really interesting about him as a, as a person is that, you know, all the discussions, Discussions around Irola suggest that he is like a sponge, right? That he has he has listened to the coaches he had in his career. He was coached by Bielsa. He was coached by Vieira. He was coached by Valverde. He had this big heart-to-heart with Eddie Howe one summer where they sent, spent an entire summer working off things with each other. And, and I think that when you look at all of those things, him being able to adapt and improvise is going to be really important to Bournemouth's season and survival. I think that there was, you know, a fair amount of righteous anger uh, when Gary O'Neill was sacked. And it's, you know, complete, considering what he did and that he was probably in the manager of the season conversation, that's completely fair enough. But if you can upgrade, and I said this before on here, but if you can upgrade a left winger, you know, if you sign a new left winger that's better than your old left winger and the old left winger gets, you know, doesn't get to play anymore, no one bats an eyelid. But if you upgrade yeah. your manager... Everyone goes mad. Even if that wing has scored, you know, 10 goals last season, you can still, if the opportunity is there to upgrade them, you upgrade them. And I think that's what Bournemouth have just done with their manager. Yeah. I, 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 like I said, I don't know enough about Iriolo as a manager to, to comment. But in terms of the approach, I'm not against it because, you know, like if, if, if it's your business and you think that, yeah, great. Thank you, Gary. I know you've done a great job. But if you think that you're better served, heading in this new direction, of course, you've got to make that decision. You know, people can talk about loyalty all they want. There's no such thing in football as loyalty. You know, it's... If Gary O'Neill, for example, was offered the job at Chelsea, you'd probably bet your bottom dollar he'd be the first one to leave. You know, I'm not knocking Gary O'Neill. It's just the way it is. That's 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 the that's the nature of it. You you, you do what's best for your own interests and your family. And um, if, if Bournemouth themselves believe that this is the direction they want to head in, then I don't... I'm not, I, I, of course, you make that decision. You make that approach. You don't just... You don't make yourself, you don't lower your expectations for what you can achieve just because of what you've done last season. Yeah. It, that's that's nonsense. That's not how anything works. Yeah. You know, it's a business. And yeah, as the approach, I'm not against it. Obviously, I, like I said, I can't comment on a Rayola too too much, but um, I'm just going to be fascinated to see how it, how it, how it goes, um, how it moves forward. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Right. Let's roll on to number three, shall we? Chelsea, uh, the most chaotic football club um, of the last how I mean this, yeah, this side just, of Valencia, I would say. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that club's been absolute chaos. Yeah, since I can remember them having David Villa. So, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Chelsea. I mean, it is quite extraordinary how you can was it six hundred million they've spent since Bowley? Yeah, six hundred yeah. million, and yet you still don't have anything in the forward line or anywhere on the pitch that you can tangibly rely on to score goals. It's, it is, I would go as far to say in, in my recent memory, it is by far pound for pound, the worst squad building I've ever seen in terms of 
how unbalanced they are. Um, the the players that they've brought in, a lot of them that, in my opinion, I won't dig out names, but are on huge wages that do not deserve those wages when you've got genuine, superb talent that they, has come through that club again and again and again, and yet they're, 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 they're put to the side for... I, I don't get it. So, But what they have got now is they've got a manager that has proven that he is superb at kind of fixing a squad and at the bare minimum, getting it to a level where there's a real connection with the players and the fans. Um, they're seen to play a way that most fans like um, and that you are at the bare minimum top four competing for, for the titles. And I think that where Chelsea are right now, they would definitely take that, but it is not, it's not a given because there is so much there to fix. Um, there is so much there to get rid of. I know they've already done quite a lot with obviously the Saudi Arabia um, transfers, um, but there's still so much to do. Um, yeah, he's got a big job on his hands, Pochettino. Um, my honest opinion is, I unless they do something in, in the rest of the window that um, people perhaps don't see coming, like signing a Victor Ozzyman or something like that, I don't see them getting top four. I don't see them getting close to it. Um, I might be left with egg on my face, but I just think the squad is too unbalanced and there is way too much to do. It's going to take a long while to fix that, in my opinion. Mm. No, I think that's really interesting. I mean, Dean, you've been interested in this Chelsea rebuild for a long time. I think a lot of people have. Um, I've been Poch- slating it. I haven't been Pochettino, interested in it. Pochettino has yeah. said all the right things for a, from a Chelsea perspective yesterday in, in his first press conference. And he's also talked about having you know young players who are hungry. If Chelsea are buying into that, it's something that we've seen succeed for Pochettino before. But at the other end of it, you do need some level of, of experience to try and guide this side through. And, and, and at the moment, it feels like that experience is all currently on a one-way plane to Riyadh. Yeah, look, um, Man United famously was supposed to never win anything with kids and they managed to do it with Sir Alex Ferguson when he, when he brought through that, that team. But that was a team of players, you know, the Nevilles and Skulls and Beckham and stuff that was brought through the academy together. They already had a bond. They already had an identity and understanding between them. So this isn't the same. Chelsea are bringing in players from all over the world, from all different backgrounds, all different cultures of playing and expecting them to mould quickly. I was looking through the other day at the players that they'd let go so far. And at the point, actually, when I was calculating this, that Ziyech was supposed to go. So the eight that I calculated, which included Ziyech, was 908. Premier League appearances between them. Now, Ziyech hasn't gone yet, but since then, Aspilicueta is going to go. So actually, that with Aspilicueta, that takes you over a 1,000 Premier League appearances have left Chelsea um, since last season. And then you've got others, obviously, that are still going to go too. Are you looking at what's left or what's coming in? This is the biggest risk factor of all, is the inexperience of top-level football. Now, these players... I'll ask Carrie about this in a second in terms of like how quickly players can step up. But, you know, just to go through what they've actually got at their disposal to, to go for next season. The two centre forwards at the moment who will be competing are Brozier and Nicola Jackson, 21 and, and 22. Brozier, obviously a bit of Premier League experience. Nicola Jackson, 
nothing. They brought in Kunku, to be fair, 25 in playing at Leipzig. I've got less fears around him. Like, he'll he'll do well. Um, but then you go further. Madweke, 20 years old. Um, you've got Mudrik was brought in, barely featured last season, 22. Kearney hasn't got his chance yet. Kani Chumomeka, he's, he's 19. Andre Santos supposed to be getting chances. He's 19. Enzo Fernandez is 22. Bringing in Caicedo, he's 20. Uh, Rhys James is 23, and he's going to be one of the most experienced players in this squad. Might even end up being the captain, to be honest, the way things are going at Chelsea. And they've got such a lack of leaders in that squad. Going to the back line, they brought in Benoit Badiashile, he's 22, only one season in England behind him. Wesley Fofana, got good experience in English football, but he's still 22. Levi Colwell breaking through, he's 20. This is unbelievable what they're doing, what they're trying to do here. Like, we've not seen anything like this. Even if they were to go and get Caicedo and Lavia, they had one season in the Premier League, and I just cannot grasp how they expect to make up for years and years of experience in the Premier League and the way that Chelsea have gained success. Pochettino yesterday was talking about, I've joined the greatest team in England. He's talking about, historically speaking, in recent years, right, of how Chelsea got that success. Well, how Chelsea got that success was buying players that were ready-made to go and win trophies the following season. They would identify a flaw and then go and sign the best player that would fix that problem. That's what the Abramovich era was all about. It wasn't about buying players for three or four years' time. And I've said before, the reason this is so important to get right is because they could start going backwards here. And if they do actually end up missing out in the Champions League again, they've got a problem when it comes to building the next phase of this build. Just to add to that, Harry, before you can come back on it, is that you look at the players who made the most appearances for Chelsea across all competitions last season, right? Kai Havertz, 47. Conor Gallagher, 45. Kepper, 39. Reem Sterling, 38. Kovacic, 37. Thiago Silva, 35. Mount, 35. Chalaba, 33. Loftus-Cheek, 33. Kukurea, 33. Azpilicueta, 32. Koulibaly, 32. Pulisic, 30. Right, of those players, Havertz has gone to Arsenal. Gallagher might stay now, but there was significant interest and potential of him leaving at some point earlier in the summer. Kepa's going to stick around as is Reem Sterling. Kovacic has gone off to Manchester City. Mason Mount's gone off to Manchester United. Chalaba has been linked with an exit. Ruben Loftus-Cheek signed for AC Milan this morning. Mark Kukurea, they've said that they will accept the appropriate offer. As quetta has gone, Koulibaly's gone, and they'll say that they're going to accept an offer for Christian Pulisic as well. That is a lot of last season's players. And look, last season was bad. So I, I can understand that there's going to be Chelsea fans listening to this going, well, yeah, last season was dreadful. We don't want the players that represented us last season to be sitting in there doing so again. But that feels like an incredible amount of change. And I said about this on Monday on our Patreon episode, that for me, the problem isn't if Chelsea take one risk. If they take a risk on, I don't know, having Nicholas Jackson and Brozier as their recognised strikers till January, if everything else in the team was settled, I'd be like, okay, you know, they're taking a risk up top, but everything else is probably going to be fine. So things are okay. But they're not. It feels like there's a risk in centre midfield. It feels like there's a risk at setting, in kind of goal. It feels like there's a risk up top. We're not quite sure what the wings are going to look like, even though there's loads of players who can potentially play them. It just feels like there's loads to fix. Tons to fix. And like I said, they've probably got one of the best managers in the world at building a squad and tearing it up. And they need to give him at least two years to do that. So even if Chelsea are 10th by April next year, you cannot sack Pochettino because he is very strong-handed in that he will look at the squad and he will identify who will be able to fit in with the culture moving forward, 
who will obviously have the quality. And if you don't, you're done. You are done. And I think that he's going to look at that squad and there's going to be quite a few names that was big money was spent on that they are going to tear up. Now, the good news about Chelsea is they've still got a raft of extremely talented young players who who have come through the club. So fans are like the first ones to like want to sell someone like Conor Gallagher. And I think it's just absolutely mental. These are like the players that right now, you need these players that will bleed for the club, that will bleed for Pochettino to get them through these periods and like come on and like right now, success next season for Chelsea should almost be not even looked at in terms of within reason, league position or trophies. Forget Almost forget that. It is purely about this season, from the start of next year, are we now in a position where most of the damage is kind of been sorted out, that we've got a, a real idea of how we're doing things. I mean, even last summer, right, they bought Koulibaly, then they also got Badiashile, then they've got, and now they've already got Levi Colwell at the club. It's like, it's like there's no thought gone behind anything. It's like a child that was playing football manager. Oh, he's he's great. He's available. Let me sign him. But now you're just left with an absolute mess of a squad that is incredibly unbalanced, that doesn't know how to mesh together. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if Chelsea, for example, signed Mudrik, who was a fantastic player, but actually didn't really have too much thinking about how he's going to fit in with the players at that current, at that current squad. Who's going to service him? Who's going to play off of him? Who's going to make the angles, for, for example? All right, now they could have done, you would hope they would do, but it doesn't look like that. And then that's not even including that some of Chelsea's most important players haven't had the best injury record recently. You know, their their fitness regime last summer, last season was an absolute disaster. I mean, I kind of felt sorry for Lampard. He was literally, he could not, it was the most difficult. Getting that team to perform was as hard a job as anything last summer because they were unbalanced. They were mentally, maybe not broken, but, you know, the season was wilting away and they weren't even fit. You know, it's, it's incredible. And like, you know, you've got, so it's going to take time. So all these people saying that Chelsea will compete next year, I, I might be wrong unless something ridiculous happens. I can't see it. But I would look at success next year for Chelsea is that, okay, if we're fast forward to this time next year, are we in a position now where it's like, right, we know what we are. We know what we're doing. We're happy. We're comfortable. We've still got things to do, but we're now, we, we, we're underway. We're underway. And now we can look to like achieve the next hurdle, the next hurdle, the next hurdle. But yeah, Chelsea have to trust Pochettino to tear it up, start again. And that's going to be off a good 18 months to two years, I reckon. Mm, yeah, it could be, it could be not necessarily another rough season, but definitely not quite the season that Chelsea fans have been hoping for so far. Let's go on to number two, Harry. That's fine, by the way. That's okay. Yeah. Like, that doesn't, like, if they are ninth, if they finish ninth and don't win a trophy, but everyone is like, okay, the squad is in a better place. We feel like we're, we're able to push on now. I'm not saying it's a good season for Chelsea, but I'm saying that, that don't panic. It's progress. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't panic. Number two, uh, yeah. One of Football Nerd's favourite uh, managers, Robert Deserby, rightly so. Superb coach, superb coach. And Brighton were brilliant under him last year. But the problem with someone like Brighton's Deserby is that it can become quite predictable. And when teams learn the patterns of play that you almost insist on, how are you going to adapt to that? Especially when you don't have the elite level talent or the world-class talent that other clubs have that can say, well, we're going to play our way and we're still going to beat you anyway. So I'm not saying that Brighton were going to get relegated. Certainly not. I don't think so. I think the Zerbi is far too good of a manager. I think they've got far too good of a squad and a setup at the club as a whole. 
But I do think that they're going to struggle a lot more than what they did last year, unless they find ways to adapt. So, you know, they've got this way of playing where they'll be very slow moving the ball out of defence, almost stopping it a lot of the time to, to bait a press. And then when that press comes, then the, the attack speeds up. They cut through them like a hot knife through butter. Teams are going to adapt to that. And, you know, even they're now weaker because McAllis has gone, who was superb in the midfield at like, you know, like getting it, linking, getting forward, you know, providing the final pass shot, etc. They've got, in my opinion, the best ball playing centre-back in the league last year, Levi Colwell, in terms of his passing. There's not a better passer for, as a centre-back in world football, never mind in the Premier League. Um, he's someone that you can trust again and again and again to like beta press and then break those lines. So, in my opinion, unless they find that Brighton do what Brighton do and find another one from somewhere, they're going to be worse in that regard. So, them becoming more predictable, um, having lesser quality of player, but then again, their recruitment model is superb. I just think it'll be more of a struggle. They're going to have to find ways to adapt. But one thing that they'll probably have next year that they didn't have last year is a relied upon number nine that will score a lot of goals and can bully opposition consistently. And I think you'll see that with Evan, Evan Ferguson next year. I think Evan Ferguson will be trusted to be their guy from the start. I think he should be. Um, he's had a lot of experience. He's had experience now, like, dabbing in and out of it. I think he's going to become the established knight and I think he's going to be outstanding next year. So he's someone that actually, even though they've lost McAllister and Colwell, etc., and they might be, and probably Carcedo, they might be three steps back. Evan Ferguson himself might put them another two steps forward from that and then they just need to keep recruiting well. But that's a hard thing to keep getting right. You know, you saw that with Southampton. You know, when you're that level of club that are trying to sort of like, not survive, but trying somehow to get in and around the top seven and, or stay there in those places, you've got to keep getting it right because you are going to lose your players and then you've just got to keep getting the recruitment right. The pressure is huge. And you see with Southampton this year that you, sometimes when it starts to slide, it does slide quite quickly. So I hope that doesn't happen in Brighton, but I think they're going to have a few things to answer next year. Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, it's really interesting. They've signed Bart Verbruggen as well, who I think is a major upgrading goal, which is which is a nice signing. I think from from their perspective, it'd be very interesting to see Harry if if Evan Ferguson gets that number nine shirt. But you are speaking my language and preaching to the <laughs> choir in so many ways, Dean. In terms of Brighton's recruitment, it's incredible how consistent they are with this. But at some point, you have to keep making these decisions correctly. And you know, we've seen at Southampton that you know one bad season and things can quite quickly fall apart from this regard. Yeah, potentially. I mean, obviously, like losing McAllister and Caicedo is a massive going to be a massive test on the squad next season. I know Caicedo not gone yet, but let's just assume he is because he will be. Um, and that is, you know, such key positions in any squad to take that out and then have to refit it is difficult and live up to those expectations. But Brighton's philosophy will still live on from where it was last season. And Deserby got a grip on that squad so quickly last season after Potter and improved them. People thought Graham Potter was doing a brilliant job. And they left and went to Chelsea and De Zerbi started doing an even better job. And people were like, oh, fair enough. Uh, maybe he wasn't doing that kind of job after all. But it's it's remarkable what this coach is capable of with a set of players. And now the fact that he's got a pre-season as well to get things ramped up for the new season, um, I think is, is quite telling. I think that uh, Brighton, if I remember rightly, have got quite a nice start to the new season as well. Like in terms of like the fixtures to begin, mm. I'm pretty sure that they're in like the top five or six in terms of what you would expect from points gained. And so 
yeah, if they can do that, then honestly, like like Harry says, I feel like there's no reason for there to be a big drop off, even the fact that they're losing such key players. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. It always is at Brighton, right? But there, you know, there's some some general things coming in. I think Billy Gilmore starting to get some minutes at the end of last season was probably a sign that. He's going to be trusted a little bit more this season. Obviously, we've seen Moda Hood come in from Dortmund. James Milner comes in from Liverpool. Now, I don't think that those two are going to step up and become the next Caicedo and McAllister. But equally, I do think that there is an element there where Brighton are starting to future-proof themselves against these transfers before they've even happened. And there's a, there's a lot to like, I think, about that. David Fertese looks like he's going to go to Inter. But the links that they're being made with, I think is probably a good sign from, from Brighton fans and their recruitment so far this summer, I think has been relatively spot on. So that's good as well. Um, let's yeah. go to number one, Harry. Right. I need to caveat this with, first of all, by saying I do not think that either team or player are going to struggle next year. So I'm going to put that out there right now, but there is going to be a, the question to answer is how are Man City going to make sure that they Keep utilising Erling Haaland to the best of his abilities. Um, now, Man City won the treble, obviously. Um, <laughs> if they don't win the treble next year, it doesn't mean it's a failure. But obviously, if they don't win the treble, then you are kind of saying, well, it's not as good as the season, you know. And <sighs> it's weird. It's like they're going to be the, they're the victims of their own success. Um, but I do think with the Erling Haaland situation is that most of the talk about Man City last year was about how are we going to best utilise Haaland. And we saw how they, you know, won everything and managed to do it and still, you know, every and you know other players were superb. But you saw towards the end of the season, his goal record wasn't great. Now, other players, you know, certainly chipped in and Haaland certainly was still a huge part of the team. Um, just even his presence being there, occupying defenders. But what I think you'll see is, again, He's actually quite a basic player in the sense of he doesn't do that many things, but what he does do is some of the best I've ever seen. So in terms of his hunger for goals, I've never seen someone as hungry to score goals. His box movement is out of this world. His ability to time his runs off the shoulder. But in terms of like his link-up play, is quite average. He has got... Average technical ability with regards to the football he's at. He's not got very good ball manipulation. So, you know, when he plays, everything is one pace, one tempo. And when you are easier to read, you're easier to stop. So what you start to see teams doing is they might not necessarily go 1v1 versus Haaland. But what they'll do is when the ball is out wide, they'll make sure that they block the zones he wants to go in inside the box. They'll defend those zones. So the ball doesn't even reach him in the first place. Now, that's on him as well. So he's going to have to improve his link-up play. So, for example, he's always playing at the 100-mile-an-hour tempo. If he can actually bring that tempo down now and again and, okay, drop into pockets, slow down, you know, release, drag players out of position that way and then speed up, now that is a different – that is a whole different kind of um, problem for defenders and opposition. But I do think that because of his quite predictable nature in terms of what he wants, you saw that was a reason why he scored less goals, you know, towards the end of the season, the last few games. That can happen to any striker – but I do think it's something for him and Man City to look at. I mean, even in terms of like, everyone says he's an elite finisher, and he is, but only at certain finishes. So you're not going to see him, for example, get the ball inside the box in a crowded area and stay cool to shift his footwork 
manipulate it onto his right foot and then slot it in. He will never score that kind of goal. He's very rarely going to score a goal on the end of a dribbling run. You know, he doesn't score too many goals off of his right foot. He doesn't score too many goals outside the box. You know, he likes to make certain moves and certain angles. And these are all, I'm not saying these are issues because you're so, he is so, so good at what he does do. And it obviously worked for him at Man City last year. But as we've seen again and again and again, you have to keep adapting. And where he perhaps didn't score as many towards the end of the season and where he is quite predictable in terms of what he wants to do, first and foremost, for him to get the best of himself again, because you have to keep going. So like you won the treble, he's won, he, he was the top goal scorer, all this kind of stuff. But to keep, you know, you've got to keep going. And I'll back him to be fair. He seems like the mindset yeah. to have, be someone yeah. who's going to keep going. But you do have to keep going. And I think it's going to be a question for him and Man City to answer in terms of, okay, now that your movements are now being, you know, worked against Haaland, how are we going to make sure that we still get the best out of you? How are you maybe going to adapt? How are we going to adapt to you again? And how are we going to keep this fresh? Now, you've probably got Pep Guardiola as the best manager in the world at tinkering with what he's already got. So I have no doubts that he will find a way, that Man City will find a way, that Haaland will find a way. But nevertheless, I do believe they'll have to find a way. Yeah, yeah, I, I think this is it. And you, you said it, you know, at the top of this segment and the top of the actual thing, it's not necessarily problems that won't get fixed. It's just something to yeah. consider at this point. Yeah. Uh, I think it's completely fair. You know, I, I think you, you're you onto something in, in what teams do and how teams deal with it. And, and, you know, there is also the kind of caveat, I suppose, that a lot of teams in the league won't be able to deal with it because City are just so yeah. good at what they so do. Good. But the question is not necessarily how are you beating the teams 13th and 14th in the table with Holland scoring a hat-trick. It's how are you getting them into games in the sharp end of the Champions League and, you know, against the other elite winning Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so I think that's how do you keep winning everything? How do you keep being good enough to beat Real Madrid? How do you keep winning cup finals, you know? Again, victim of your own success, but that's 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 the nature of the beast. Yeah, it's also the standard the city have set for themselves. So that's where it is now. And you know, there's yeah. no Gundogan who who obviously stepped up in those areas. You're going to have to find different ways of of making things work. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. I have no doubts whatsoever. But it's it's very much something that will have to be considered. Who knows? Pep probably playing a four four two next season with Alvarez and Holland <laughs> up front, knowing what we know. Um, but with that, I think we're probably going to call this segment an end. Thank you so much, to Mr. Harry Brooks. Five problems that need to be addressed they probably will be in the premier league next season after the break we've got some of your hot takes so don't go anywhere welcome back to ranks fc jack Collins here with head coach harry brooks and the transfer guru mr dean jones and it's time to listen to some hot takes from the rank squad we're going to start off today yes. with one all the way from australia this it's from Luke Shaw, not Wow. All right. Um, hello, Rank Squad. Uh, this is Luke from Australia. Uh, apologies if I sound like a zombie. Um, it is Monday morning. The sun has not risen in freezing cold winter Melbourne. Uh, but this is a post box entry that I sent uh, for the Patreon that there was a suggestion I should record it, uh, perhaps as a hot take, I guess. Uh, so I'm just sort of reading it out. So here we go. This is a... Australian perspective on Ange Postacoglu's current position at Tottenham. So here we go. Uh, during Ange's time in Australia, he gutted a forever mediocre Brisbane Raw team, uh, which included Socceroo, ex-Socceroos like Craig Moore, and uh, brought in some players we'd never heard of like Marcus Flores, Thomas Broish, and turned them into champions. Then he went to Melbourne Victory, and he moved on club legend Carlos Hernandez, as well as an ageing Harry Kuehl, 
um, who was on in, in ungodly money um, and prepped them to become champions. Um, he had to leave before that because uh, he was given the Socceroos job, but they, they went on to win the title and it was based on him him building that, that team, putting them together and teaching the assistant coach, Kevin Musket, everything he knew um, and his philosophy. Then his first act as Socceroos coach was to retire Australia's greatest ever generation, the golden generation, um, which included Captain Lucas Neal and Mark Schwarzer. Um, there's a bunch of others that were just super pissed that um, he just told them they're not playing for the Socceroos anymore. The only one that survived that was Tim Cahill, and we all remember that 2014 goal against the Dutch, um, so he for sure deserved to stay. Um, but yeah, the level of heat that he got from that was more than any pressure he ever got from Celtic fans. Um, and uh, yeah, what did he do? Uh, he went on to win the Asian Cup for the Socceroos, the only trophy they've ever won, um, and yeah, one of the greatest, the, the greatest achievement in uh, Australian uh, soccer, football um, of all time. So whatever pressure people think he's under at Tottenham is, is not as intense as when, when, he, when he dumped the golden generation of the Socceroos. The guy's a living legend, and I, I think Harry Kane will be begging for a contract before the end of the season if he stays because, um, yeah, that's how good this guy is. Um, looks like I'm about to run out of time. So, uh, yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> love it, love it. That is, that is a hot take. That Harry Kane begging for a new contract. That is a, that is a proper so well. I was really interested. I thought we agreed with everything he was saying, and then he just had to, at the end there, say, Harry Kane, we're begging for a contract. That is not happening. <laughs> I, like I hope... I, yeah, I like the concept, and um, it would be great if Ange can be as big a success as as he's talking about him potentially being. And you know, a lot of people that watch Postecoglou's football genuinely believe that he can do this, that he can live up to well, he can exceed, I should say, the expectations because the expectations I think generally are low at the moment, and he's not the high profile name that they that a lot of people would have expected when the likes of Nagelsmann were being linked with that job. So. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. He does seem to win trophies everywhere he goes. That's the one thing that Tottenham desperately needs. So if they can get a trophy and Kane on new contracts in a year's time, well, Harry will be doing cartwheels, that's for sure. Build the statue. Build the statue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love Harry, it. Harry and Ange, arm in arm, having a, a great yeah. time. I think it's interesting, though, about pressure. You know, we talked about this and Harry, you and I discussed this on an Ange Postecoglou special a couple of weeks ago about, yeah. you know, if the fans will give him time and, and the pressure that he's under. But I think that was a really good point from Luke about the heat that he got. And, you know, he was on TV arguing with Mark Schwarzer about the fact that he dropped him from the Socceroos and everyone was furious. And he went on and, and, and won the Asian Cup. There have been, you know, periods where he's he's had to go and prove himself everywhere he's gone. And so far, so good. So I think that's a pretty good omen for, for Tottenham fans. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I agree with the, the sense that he, that the pressure is not as big in the Premier League. It is the most watched league in the world. It's it's the biggest one. So, of course, the pressure is huge. But it, it's clear as night and day that his character is someone that is fine with that pressure. He's fine with the pressure of people not being sure about him. He backs himself and he does what he does. So, whether you've got 10 people shouting at you or 1,000 people shouting at you, he doesn't, need to be perturbed, he doesn't seem to be perturbed by it. So... That's obviously puts him in good stead because not as bad as Chelsea in terms of the, the, the refurbishment, but there is a lot of refurbishment that needs to be done at Tottenham. Um, and you're going to need a, a, a strong-handed character to do that. And Ange is certainly one of them, it seems. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is a nice take. Indeed. Right. Let's go to Aris. What's Aris got for us? Hi, guys. My hot take is that N'Golo Kante has been the best all-round midfielder 
in the Premier League for the last decade and he has been in the top five uh, for the entire history of the Premier League for all-round midfielders. Maybe he's not as prolific in front of goal as Lampard or Gerrard or he hasn't got the dribbling ability of someone like Vieira, but I think he has been a very important part in two Premier League winning teams and he has also won the Champions League. The only ones that I can say are above him for sure are Lampard, Gerrard and Vieira. So what do you think? Also, I'm sorry for my poor accent. I'm from Greece, so English is just my second language. It's been a it's been a real postcogly off here. We've had a, a, an Australian and a Greek. Uh, it's, yeah, uh, we've it really absolutely is. nailed his English is better than mine. So <laughs> I'm gonna say. I was gonna say there's no, no problem with that apology at all. needed. Exactly. Thank you so much, Aris. Uh, it's hot. A, really, hot. It is hot. I, I think. I think Roy Keane might have something to say. Would be my uh, one of my potential point, but I definitely think Kante's in this conversation. I don't think it's that hot in terms of having him in the conversation, whether he's top five all time. I, I think it's very plausible. It's one for the head coach, I think. Yeah, listen, I love Kante and his influence is um, cannot be argued against, but I just think that the hardest thing in football is being the man to to make things happen and to win games and to score goals and to create goals and to get your team over the line. And Kante has been an incredible facilitator in allowing the team to do that, but he has not been the man to do that. And if we're talking about just individual abilities, yeah, you can talk about the achievements of like, he won two Premier Leagues and Champions League, yeah, of course, but it's not just the number of trophies that you take into account, it's everything and individual ability. I mean, for me, the best Premier League midfielder of all time is Yaya Torre. I do believe that in terms of, Mm. in terms of, uh, he could do, you know, people talk about Gerard Lampard, all of that, and yeah, of course, but, Yaya Torre could do all of that and more. And he did win three Premier Leagues, I think. You know, it's not like he was only here for two seasons. People seem to think they only had two great seasons. Like, he was in the Premier League for a long time and he was absolutely ridiculous. I even remember when he won the Champions League for Barcelona playing that centre-back. Like, the guy's an insane footballer. So I get, I get like, the idea behind Kante. But just for me and how I would view the best of the best of the best, kind of what I said at the start of the show, for me, it's, it's harder to create than it is to destroy. And of course, Kante wasn't just a destroyer. He was a phenomenal footballer. He is a phenomenal footballer who would score goals at your time and things like that. But I just think that to be the best of the best, you are the player that is like making things happen in attack and dragging. You're, you're the one that drags the team over the line. Kante wasn't really that player, but he was an amazing facilitator at getting the team over the line, if that makes sense. So that's probably why I wouldn't put him top five. But listen, it's a, it's a good, it's, that's just my opinion. Mm, it's a good. I think it's a good take. It's a good hot take. Yeah, without yeah, yeah. it's a good oh, take it's without it, without necessarily getting to yeah, agree yeah. with it. It is probably yeah, the way yeah. I'd say. But yeah, Aris, uh, a really good shout from you there. Uh, right, let's finish off with Teddy. Hello, mate. Hey, Jack Dean. Um, thank you for letting us send these in. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, all right, so I want to talk about the handball rule. Um, and my hot take is that there shouldn't be just a small change to the rule. There should be a pretty substantial change to the rule um, where maybe, you know, only 20, 25% of current handballs at most are called handballs. Um, it's just, it's it's too cruel of a rule. It decides too many big games, like the Levante one. It was a big factor in the, the Europa Conference League final. Um, and, you know, 
numerous others. And there's probably nothing I can think of in any other sport that is such a mismatch between, okay, how dangerous was, you know, the situation and how trivial was the event and, you know, what's the outcome, which is a penalty kick here. Um, so a couple of changes I think should happen. One, um, the refs should factor in the game state a lot more. So they should not treat a handball that's on, you know, a shot on target, Luis Suarez situation. Um, that should be treated differently than, okay, here's a cross, a speculative cross from the edge of the box um, that, you know, hits someone's hand one foot in the box. That's, you know, at best, one in 50, one in 100 of those is going to go in. So the idea to give a, you know, 0.8 XG opportunity out of that is just ridiculous. You should want the game to, you know, the result of the game to match what happens on the field as much as possible. Um, and that's just a huge mismatch. Um, so second, I don't want, I want a strict en enforcement of the term intentional. Um, I don't care if about the silhouette really. Um, again, unless it's blocking like a shot going in or something. Um, you know, if you're five feet, five feet away from the person and you're, you know, turning around as the defender and hits your outstretched arm, that's obviously not intentional. It's common sense. Everyone knows that it's not intentional. Um, that shouldn't be a penalty kick. Um, and, you know, and they should also not be calling penalty kicks on things that are, you know, deflections from someone, you know, the ball pinging around, hits someone three feet from you and hits into your hand. It's obviously not intentional. It's common sense. Um, if you're two, two feet away, uh, one foot away from the uh, other player, like it happened in the Levante game, that's obviously not intentional. It's common sense. Um, so I don't want any of those being called. Um, and yeah, of course, there's, you know, judgment involved in this, but there's judgment involved in everything. And, you know, I think with VAR, you can have a burden of proof, a pretty high burden of proof. Is this intentional? Um, and you can come to the conclusion, if it's obvious it's intentional, call it. If it's not, don't call it. I think it would make a, uh, you know, result of the game that's much more fair to what actually happens at the run of play. Let me know what you think. It's a lot from Teddy. Thank you for sending that in, mate. It, there's a lot to kind of digest there, I think. But uh, overall, I, I kind of, I, I'm on board, but to a lesser scale, I think, than, than what Teddy said. I think Teddy's pulling it right back to kind of very, it has to be an intentional handball and a shot on target for it to be called as a penalty. I think it's probably a little bit more, or less black and white than that. But I, I think that in terms of what we're talking about, handballs and talking about these decisions that do change games, and you look at the two in the Conference League final and the Europa League final, the one that was called for West Ham, the one that wasn't called for Roma. And with those two decisions in mind, it's very difficult to kind of look at it and go, oh yeah, they haven't affected the outcomes of those two games in a pretty drastic measure in opposite ways for things that were ultimately pretty similar as outcomes. Yeah, I've, I'm so torn over the handball. Like, because as a fan, like it, you know, when the ball in, goes into a box and like you're there's suddenly, like if you're at the game particularly, there's that, depends which way around it is, but either that sudden like light, like, oh my God, are we about to get a penalty? Or the despair, like, oh, did that just hit Tim Ream's elbow? Whatever. Like that, for me, that's part of the roller coaster of football. And like, I, I it's it is hard because it has gone so far now in terms of being non-intentional um and, and they're giving us pens and that is difficult I, I think it's really tough to know where to draw the line here but 
ultimately, if if your back's turned and you're five yards away, then yeah, I think it's probably a shout for why it shouldn't be handball unless that ball is going directly in on goal. But again, like that is hard to determine in itself, and you've got you've got to go back to look at VAR anyway half the time to see whether it was going on goal, whatever. Ball tracking, DRS. <laughs> yeah, ball tracking, blimey. Games are going to be at two and a half hours long soon. It's tough. Like In a way, you just have to have this like overarching rule where if it's your hand or your arm, it's a handball. And that's... Harry, how do, how do players feel about this the handball rules these days? Because you obviously like coach defenders and stuff who are, who are most victimised over this. I, I said this before, I will never, ever coach a defender to defend with their arms behind their back. It's ridiculous because yeah. it's not right. And players, but to be fair, you know, you play football to a high level team. Jack, you play football. We all play football. We all know if something is just or not. And I think the problem is, is with rules, people want to draw lines where you can't draw lines. So they want to have this one clear definition of what handball is. But if you have that, there were always going to be elements of like, oh yeah, but obviously not that situation, but the yeah. way the rule is worded. So I honestly believe, I know this might be sound like something that can't really be done. But I, I agree with the overall notion of, of that hot take. I personally believe that it should be, ugh, decisions should be down to the referee's discretion. So it's like, if the, the Jack Grealish one, when he jumped and it hit behind his arm, all right, in the, but obviously not. Do you see what I mean? Where it's yeah. like, if if a defender, not a defender ever would, but defender with his arms out like that, yep. and it hit them, it might not be intentional, but obviously you can't be doing yeah, that. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. like I do believe that it should be intentional within reason. So it's like if a player has intentionally done it, then yeah, you call a free kick or a penalty, whatever it is, because it's intentional and it's against. You can't do that. If it's like unintentional, but the but the player is doing something ridiculous like that, then yeah, tough. And I think it's one of those where people people won't be comfortable with that because you can't. There's no real line drawn, and referees might make a decision that people disagree with and say, "Oh yeah, but that's clearly not." Well, tough life goes on. Like, get on with it. Like, people make yeah. mistakes. People have disagreements. Like, we seem to think in football that it is the that refereeing decisions is the only thing where everything has to be perfect, and it cannot be. And what it's doing is the more you're trying to find the the perfect the perfect refereeing performance, the more we're ruining the game, like VAR getting delayed for, you know, you can't mm. celebrate a goal because what if someone's fingernail was offside in uh, over there? It's like, it's, just, it's too much. Like managers make mistakes, players make mistakes. So do officials get on with it. Like at the end of the day, I don't know any situation where I'm sure there has been, and I'm sure people will point it out, but it's very rare where a huge, like a, a title decider or a relegation has been decided off of like a bad decision. All right. But what I would say to that is let's say someone said, Oh, we got relegated because of this. Well, no, you got relegated because you were worse over 38 games. It's like tough. It happens. Just get on with it. I just wish there was more of that approach, but <laughs> that would happen. More money comes into it. The more these people are going to try to do everything they can yeah. to find every perfect rule and basically making failure as, less of a chance as possible because money's at stake and it it sucks <laughs> yeah yeah i mean the the one that always comes out is the the villa sheffield united ghost goal remember yeah <laughs> listen, right. so, like, so of course i'm sure there are situations no, 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 but like, that was I such said, a strange it, day <laughs> remember it was like it's out of the blue i mean like i'm a spurs fan you could say that spurs lost the champions league 
off of that Sissoko armpit handball. I mean, but by the same token, how often is that going to happen? Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, it happens. Get on with it. And actually, it was VAR that probably, like, made that decision happen because the referee gave it. I mean, he could go back and change his mind if he needed to. Whereas if you're doing it in normal time, you'll probably realise, no, I can't give handball for that. But I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's another situation. I just think that, I think that it, 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 they try to overcomplicate it too much and you end up with these page after page of rules that no one understands and that's what leads to all the confusion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Well, with that, I think it's probably time for us to call it a day. I love Thank the hot you. takes. I it's love so the hot good. takes. Thank you to everyone who sent them in. Obviously, we can only put three in per episode, but I've got loads. So please do keep sending them in and we will work our way through them across the course of the season. This is something that's very much here to stay on Ranks FC. Uh, but for now, thank you so much to Luke, Aris and Teddy for their contributions to this week's hot takes. Thank you so much to our transfer guru, Mr. Dean Jones. Cheers, mate. Thank you so much to the head coach, Mr. Harry Brooks. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you very much. I've been Jack Collins, name of hearts. <laughs> this has been Ranks FC. Thank you so much Thank for tuning much. in. As ever, we really do appreciate you. Please do give us a review and a rating on Apple or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does help us to grow. Uh, we will see you next week, gang. Take it easy. Peace. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.